0: Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Quick update. So the overlords at Squarespace pulled a fast one and changed the permissions of my website. <clears throat> uh, posting, yes. And oh yeah, the donation tab was locked. So special shout out to Herbert for catching that. And another special shout out to Herbert for the donation. Thank you, Herbert. The cost of the website doubled. I've had to change my subscription from a personal one to a business one, but that's not the biggest deal in the whole world. So be sure to rate the show five stars, give it a follow, and donate if you feel so inclined. It may not seem like a lot to you, but it really does make a big difference for me. But last time, Liang Ji started small. But then he started wheeling and dealing. And dealing he was. But his truest form was yet to be reached. His peak villain moment hasn't happened yet. We will now, finally, dive into Peak Liang Ji. And then, hopefully, discuss more what was actually happening in the dynasty outside the palace. What is causing all these rebellions? What does the average person think of all this? So, without further ado, the History of China, Episode 59 Peak Liang Ji. Emperor Huan was now the emperor. Liang Ji had picked and killed his way to serving Emperor Huan, or more realistically, picked and killed and picked again his way to have the best chance to control the emperor and give himself more time to consolidate power within the government. He had committed regicide and had enough power now that he could stop any investigation into the death of the emperor. I mean, if there was ever a death to investigate, that would be the one. But Liang Ji had enough sway by this point to render those efforts useless. And not to beat the dead horse, or dead emperor, I guess, but Liang Ji went from pushing people into other offices, his enemies, getting them away, to straight up regicide. Once you go for broke, there's no turning back. Now, he may have become more brazen and violent, but he was still a deft political actor. He wasn't using more violence because he lost his mind totally or something. Instead, think about it like he earned the ability to be more violent. It was a tool he finally was able to have in the toolbox. He had secured enough political capital to do so, to be violent. He wasn't just some mental basket case. Well, look, he might have been, but you get my point. Though, long story short, he used the carrot too, not just the stick. He knew he wasn't the emperor. We all know that, even now. There were other people in the government, and there were other people in the government that could cause him problems. And no, he couldn't just liquidate them. Well, not yet, because he isn't the emperor. And even if he was, I mean, an emperor, you start purging, people get ideas about getting rid of you before you get rid of them. He can't just kill people that stand in his way outright. He needs friends. Now, eunuchs had become a stronger and stronger force in the palace and government. We know that. They've gone from beyond just trusted family roles to full-on power brokers. And Liang Ji knew this and made sure to spread the love when it helped him. He gave gifts to powerful eunuchs and officials, he hosted feasts, he complimented and helped others out. When it helped him. It's really just like a mafia scheme in a bad analogy. You put goodwill where you needed to go to grease the wheels, but you are ruthless to any dissent. Liang Ji was practically telling people, you either get with the program, my program, it's really not that bad, look at all the nice things I gave this guy, or if you don't get with the program, mm, it might get bad. And he was able to get another barb in the government beyond just the gift giving and the friend quote unquote making by getting Emperor Juan by proxy of the Empress Dowager to marry Liang Ji's little sister and make her empress. That's a small piece, though, and that will be important later, so file that away. And all this goes to show what I've been saying. He knows you can't win alone. And a perfect example of this strategy working is what happened with Li Gu in 147. Li Gu, as we know by now, was staunch anti-Liangji. He did not like him, he knew what he was about, and the Empress up until this point had protected him. He was the one that tried to investigate the recent regicide. He knew what was up, but he was playing a dangerous game. So in 147, with the help of his newly bought friends... In the form of the eunuchs Zhou and Tang, Liang Ji leveled his by far most aggressive ploy within the government, well, outside of regicide. If you remember, Prince Swan had become the odds favorite to become emperor the last two go arounds. But as we know, Liang Ji couldn't have an adult, let alone a non family member adult, be emperor the show for him would be more or less over. So that's one piece. And of course, there's Li Gu. How do these two have anything in common? Hmm. So in a sweeping move, Liang Ji and his eunuch posse accused Li Gu and Prince Swan of trying to start a full-fledged rebellion. One guy leveling these accusations, mm mm-mm, That's not going to fly. But with the eunuch's help, these accusations held because they were corroborated, albeit corruptly. And Prince Swan, for his part, got demoted so far out of his current place, he ended up killing himself. And meanwhile, finally, Liang Ji had outdone Li Gu because Li Gu was executed. Oh yeah, you see where this is going. With Li Gu finally taken off the board, let's remind ourselves who now actually can even remotely act as a countermeasure in any way to Liang Ji. Realistically, it's just Liang Bu Yi, his brother, and his sister, the Empress Dowager. And in 150, the Empress Dowager dies. She had been probably the most capable at keeping Liang Ji in check. She outright told him no several times, but still never seemed to grasp what he was capable of. She, for her part, had the ear of the emperors more than he did, but she let him in, and she never really did enough to remove him. She told him no, but she never did anything that remotely signaled that she was aware how bad he was. However, before she died, she had relinquished her regency over Emperor Juan. And he was now technically on his own. Remember that, too. Even though the regency was done now, with his sister being gone and all... Liang Ji, over the last few years, had truly procured enough power to now hold the strings of government administration. All of them. Emperor Huan be damned. And here is where his brazenness begins to reach something like terminal velocity. He made his wife the Lady of Xiangcheng. She ended up getting a crazy amount of land with that title, which means Liang Ji did. Big mansions, expensive things, tons of wealth. You get the picture. To further paint what was happening here, the way to keep the cash and the nice things coming in often started to just be accuse a wealthy landowner of crimes, take their cool stuff for himself, kill them, repeat. He's a villain. He had reached peak form, his final stage of evolution, may I say. Oh, and to man these now swelling properties, you need labor. So, of course, just enslave the local peasants. Saves money, easy. And yes, obviously, that is exactly what Liang Ji did. But peak villain form began to show another side of Liang Ji because he began to show hubris. He truly had all the cards in the deck and now he could show it. In a small but important instance, he further demonstrated this flaunting, but finally, it had some consequence. There are laws in the Han Dynasty, believe it or not, and we will get to those. For the sake of this story, the important law here is that you simply cannot bring weapons into the Imperial Meeting Hall. Everyone knows that. Well, back then they did. That doesn't need much explanation, though. You cannot have weapons in a tight room where policy is made and where the Emperor is. Duh. And this is not a new rule. This had been a rule for a very long time. It's common practice at this point. Liang Ji, though, if you're not picking up what he has become, yeah, brought a full-fledged sword to the imperial meeting hall. Now, this was an affront. This is ridiculous. And an official requested that Liang Ji be impeached, which is just letting him off soft, if you ask me. This is a tried-and-true rule. He just broke it. He didn't seem to care. However, obviously Liang Ji controlled the strings of government now. I've only told you ten times. He really did. So he obviously was not impeached. But it was recorded that he was legitimately embarrassed. He broke a clear rule for no reason. And he overstepped. And he got caught doing so which, believe it or not, so far he really hasn't gotten himself tied up that much. So he ended up giving up his annual salary that year. Didn't get impeached, was embarrassed, gave up his salary. That's not the end of it, obviously, because you can't impeach Liang Ji or even float that idea and expect him just to forget. And again, no matter how embarrassed he was, he's not going to forget that. The official who sought Liang Ji's impeachment was in his current position in the government because he was promoted by none other than Liang Bu Yi, the last remaining check on Liang Ji. If you remember from last episode and the episode before that, Liang Bu Yi was yes, Liang Ji's brother. But more importantly now, in this moment, he was, of course, the mayor of Doyang, the capital city. Liang Ji, being who he was, was now moderately suspicious of his brother, which is par for the course with Liang Ji. However, it was his own absurd decision-making that even brought up the idea of impeachment. Still, you can't be allowed to exist in this government if you are even remotely suspicious to Liang Ji. And so, Liang Ji removed his brother, Liang Buyi Yi, from his role as mayor of Luoyang and made his own teenage son, probably around 15 years old, the new mayor of Luoyang. Of course, Knowing Liang Ji, you shouldn't be surprised that he did not stop there. He proceeded to rid the government of all of Liang Bu Yi's friends, his buddies, his allies, gone. But Liang Bu Yi was the last person that could realistically say no to Liang Ji and not be killed. Nothing now really could stand in Liang Ji's way. And he made sure to capitalize on that. He went full Wang Mang. Remember him? The guy who tried to start his own dynasty and did the Western Han? Oh yeah, we're back to this. Liang Ji, for example, got himself to, yes, of course, yes, be allowed to carry his sword into the Imperial Meeting Hall. Now he can do that. He got people to officially only refer to him as his title and rank, something that's very rare. He got his new bought-off or scared co-officials to convince the emperor to give him even more money and even more land. And yeah, I haven't mentioned this yet, but officials in that time were usually required to essentially jog into the imperial meeting hall. That was an actual Han Dynasty rule. And of course, Liang Ji got himself a special dispensation so that he no longer had to do that. And he would proceed to walk very slowly to the meeting hall just to show you that he could. This ridiculous display of self-aggrandizement made a lot of people step back and say, wait a minute, you're giving yourself titles, money, special privileges not seen since some emperors, acting all like Wang Mang, who was a usurper? Are you going for the throne? We might ask that now, but obviously you couldn't say that out loud back then, or you would probably be killed. Liang Ji, though, spoiler, is now dead, so I can say that. He looked like he was trying to usurp the throne. And this nonsense of just lining his pockets, making himself more powerful, carried on for years. But in 159, Liang Ji would finally reach a scenario in which he struggled to control. In 159, Emperor Huan's empress died. She was Liang Ji's sister, after all. Here, by the way, is a crossroads. Liang Ji doesn't really need the empress to be related to him anymore. He has now gotten himself in a place where he can manhandle the court, control the government, control the palace. The government was in his hand more than he could have ever dreamed. He controlled everything. But Liang Ji wanted more. He could have just stepped back. He had it all, all the power, all the influence. But he couldn't help himself. And what would make him think he could miss? He has been on a simply astounding rise to power and control. People that get in his way are moved. He gives himself the titles. He gets himself the land. He gets himself more money but now he's not connected to the empress. So, he schemed with his wife, and they adopted a girl named Deng Meng Nhu. Liang Ji and his wife then made her an imperial consort. The plan, it's simple. Get the emperor to pick her as his next empress, which in turn, obviously, directly translates to, give Liang Ji even more power. But power was predicated in this scenario on actually being able to control Dang Meng She may have been adopted by Liang Ji, but she was no orphan. So to tie up loose ends, assassins were sent to kill the girl's mother. And here is where it all falls apart. It wasn't the regicide. It wasn't the crazy and obvious power grabs. None of that. It was because the assassins were found out by the mother's neighbor, a powerful eunuch. The mother reported the assassination attempt to Emperor Huan, and finally, through all of this, they actually now had a way to get rid of Liang Ji. Emperor Huan, who I know we have sort of neglected, was not an idiot, though. He knew what Liang Ji was, what he really was. But he didn't really have a clear way to deal with it. Liang Ji controlled the palace. He's clearly proven he can take out an emperor if he really wants to. He didn't have that clear way to deal with him. Until now. So Emperor Huan calls together a group of Eunuchs and swore to rid the dynasty of Liang Ji. To seal the pact, they bit into one of the Eunuchs' arms and swore on his blood. Look, you bite the arm and swear by the blood, you know it's legit. Though Liang Ji found out something was up, obviously. He controlled the government pretty much. This pact had to act like now. They needed to make a move. They quickly got Emperor Huan to publicly and open well, not really publicly, but openly announce that he was taking back all the power Liang Ji had. And he got the Imperial Guards in place beforehand to guard the palace to protect against a counterattack by Liang. A cornered animal fights. Who knows what Liang Ji will do if it really comes to it? He then surrounded Liang Ji's house and forced him to surrender. They made the first move, and they made it well. Liang Ji and his wife were unable to do anything. Realizing that the writing was on the wall and that they had been outmaneuvered, they both committed suicide. If you were mind-blown by Game of Thrones, this should have fried your brain. What a story. Chaotic, wild, amazing. Something only history can give us. Though amazing for our entertainment, but not the dynasty, and especially not those living through it. Always remember that. Subsequently, the Liang clan was obviously, par for the course, liquidated. They were dealt with. And if you were worried about Liang Bu Yi, don't worry, he died on his own, He wasn't executed. And here is where, though, you see the true depth and scope of Liang Ji's long ploy. Because when his properties and possessions were seized, dynasty-wide taxes were cut in half for a full year. Yeah, that's how much he had amassed. Wow. But then comes the negative. Obviously, Liang Ji's sycophants had to be expelled from the government. But Liang Ji had created such deep roots that when his cronies were in fact removed, he had so many that when they were removed, the government allegedly could not operate. It was frozen. And it was frozen for quite a while. And at the end of it all, getting rid of Liang Ji, repossessing all of his things, cutting the taxes, all of that, Emperor Huan did end up making Deng Meng Nu his empress. Ironic. And yes, before I get an angry email, her last name had been changed to Liang during this ordeal, but Emperor Huan, once finding out, had it changed back to Deng. I just referred to her as the name she's remembered with in history. But yeah, the plan worked in the end. She did in fact become empress. But Liang Ji was just not there to see it. If that's not a cool metaphor for how to live your life and how plans can backfire, I don't know what else is. Thankfully, though, for the Han, who has their government totally shocked and frozen, Emperor Huan himself was also corrupt and unwilling to accept any form of critiques or criticism. So you just dealt with all of this, you get rid of Liang Ji, and now you finally get Emperor Huan and he sucks. Well, that's a bit harsh, but he was really not great. In the same year that Emperor Huan rid the dynasty of Liangji, the Liangji virus may I say, He had a chance to also fix another problem, that of the growing eunuchs power. A county magistrate had submitted a petition and it said, look, you gotta stop this. You have to curb the powers of the eunuchs. It's tainting the ability of the government to work. And he's right. All of these little things, they keep having the chance to be put away for good and no one does anything. And in this case, with a chance to knock out two birds in a year, Emperor Juan was so offended that the official had stated that, quote, is the emperor turning blind, end quote, in regards to the fact that no one was fixing this problem, that he got rid of the official, executed them, and obviously did not end up fixing the eunuch problem. Great. Bad decisions continued. Wow, bad policy worsened. Fantastic. Things are bad. Well, maybe not bad, but definitely bad in retrospect. Because in 161, the Chiang Rebellions were proving to be extremely expensive to deal with. Armies have to be kept in the field. Supplies have to be bought. You get the idea. So Emperor Huan did something new. Not new in the grand scheme of history, though he was definitely on the early side to do this, but he pulled the tried and true trick of selling titles. Yeah. That happened in pre-revolutionary France, and how did that go? That happened in England, how did that go? And of course, these are modern examples, but it would prove to be another nail in the coffin for the Han. They might not know it then, but it would be. But before we get to the results of that failure of a policy, I want to pull us back here and understand what was actually happening in the Chiang region and with the other rebellions. They are rebelling, we know this. But why? How did they keep it going? What were they fighting for? What was happening to the people of the Han? It seems all doom and gloom now, but yeah, the policies are failing at the macro, but what is happening to those on the lower side? You know, the average side of things. And I just want to pivot us there to end this episode. So, next episode, get ready to dive into the wild world of rebellions. Again, be sure to rate the show five stars, follow it, share it with your friends, donate, whatever. I'm just so glad you guys are listening, and I'm back to posting. So, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China.